Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I had tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 93. In today's episode, I interview musician, athlete, writer, and educator, Brent Brookbush. Be sure to stick around for the end of the show to hear what playing jazz taught Brent for all areas of life, dunking a basketball in your 30s, and all of the amazing education available for movement professionals. Alrighty, guys, and welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Brent Brookbush. Had to try that. Had to practice that one. Still almost stuck it. Anyway, Brent, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is, tell us about your health journey in 10 sentences or less. Health journey in 10 sentences or less. I started as a really scrawny kid. When I say scrawny, I mean high school started at six foot one, 135, 140. Um. So I started lifting, and then I ended up on the whole supplement thing, which you know I think every aspiring bodybuilder kind of gets hooked into. The guy at the supplement company that I was going to, the supplement store I was going to in Vegas, said, "Hey, you should become a personal trainer if you like working out so much." And that's that's kind of how it all started. That was 19 years ago. So it's been a, a little bit of a varied path for you then along those uh, years. Uh, one of the things I'm actually curious about, though, too, uh, I don't remember what instrument you said you played, but I know you played uh, music quite a bit, uh, and you tore a muscle in your face that kind of ended the career on that, right? Yeah, so I started off as a jazz trombone player. I wasn't an athlete. I went to a performing arts academy where they had no sports. Um, we had a couple, like, rec basketball games that I played in, but... Um, yeah, no sports growing up, jazz trombone player. I was kind of a little prodigy kid um, and get, went out to New York, came out to New York on a full tuition ride to play jazz. A few months after I got here, I ended up tearing the muscle in my face, uh, which is called your orbicularis oris, and that ended my career, um, unfortunately. And somewhat fortunately, jazz is a hard lifestyle. I'm, I'm curious because like, I, I've I've worked with uh, patients like with with a lot of TMJ problems. Like I've taken classes like that, but I've never heard of this. I mean, I'm guessing this is fairly common in music then uh, for something like that to happen. And have you ever thought about even just like researching like rehab on this to even uh, help people out? Yeah. So that probably looking back over my history was my first introduction to physical therapy. Um, as far as an interest for me, because there is no rehab protocol for what is called Satchmo syndrome. There's actually a name for what happened to me. Um, there are a couple specialists in the world, a couple plastic surgeons who have repaired this injury for professional musicians. I did have my orbicularis oris repaired twice um, and could never gain enough endurance back after surgery to go back to playing what we'll call semi-professionally at the time because I was still a very young student. I was 21 years old. Um, so I tried to create a rehab program. I actually used the NASM CES model. Uh, I know Scott Lucette ended up getting that email who 
was one of the big wigs at NASM back in the day, and I titled the email "How to Fix Your Face," which uh, I think got me an introduction to the NASM guys. So something like that, usually get you in, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Using my sense of humor a little bit, and uh, it, it was a pretty pretty good article considering there's just no research there. And I tried my hardest to come back. Um, it just wasn't meant to be. You know, I think I got up to the point where I could play for like 30, 45 minutes. But the truth of the matter is, is as you can imagine with anything you do professionally, if I couldn't get back to four to six hours of practice per day, it wasn't even worth going down that path. Um, I did try to pick up a saxophone a few years later on as a brand new saxophone student, other than he knew how I played on trombone. He was the guy who brought um, And sure enough, about a year after I started studying with Walt, I started having the same chop problems again. So I called it at that point. Still love jazz. I still go and watch jazz. One of my master instructors for the Brooke Bush Institute is also a former jazz musician. Uh, so we try to get out and watch some jazz together. Um, you know, but it wasn't meant to be. And like I said, looking back, my life is probably better off now. Jazz, unfortunately, is a bit of a a dying art, unfortunately. As much as I love it, it's it's just really hard to make a living that way. Is there anybody that you're uh, still really following or really into uh, as far as oh, jazz yeah. goes? Oh, yeah. I still follow Kenny Garrett. I still follow Chris Potter, Dave Douglas. And now there's a bunch of new cats out there that, like, I'm just now, thanks to Pandora, uh, I'm just now getting introduced to. Um, yeah, I mean, jazz is not dying because the musicians are getting worse. The musicians just continue to get better, more creative, continue to build on what came before them. There's, I mean, the prodigies out there. There's a kid right now who I think got nominated for a Grammy at 12 years old, like, just sick, um, but yeah, that's the whole jazz thing, man. You, you can, we could talk for an entire hour just about jazz, but I know that's not what this podcast is about. No, but I mean, I'm still interested. I mean, that's part of your story, and really, I know nothing much about jazz. But hey, you're, you're, you, we can still tie it uh, into some of the the physical uh, part of it because of just hey, the injuries and yeah, just stuff that I was really not even aware of. So that was uh, thank you for sharing that, though. I'll tell you two things that I think came from my jazz career that I think everybody could learn from. Um, number one is delayed gratification. I think there's a serious lack of understanding of delayed gratification as a society right now. The idea that you're going to start working today and the benefits are going to come out six months from now, right? Or a year from now or three years from now. Like, And then I think... To that end, it's something I tell anytime somebody asks me for business advice is you got to get on your grind. And everybody's like, what? And I'm like, you have to know how you're going to spend 8 to 12 hours a day. You have to spend that 8 to 12 hours a day and you have to stick with it. Because if you're not doing it 40 to 60 hours a week, somebody else is going to. Um, so I think that whole idea of, you know, when I was a jazz musician, I practiced four to six hours every day, right? That's what got me ahead. That's what got me my full tuition rides. That's what got me into the academies. That's what's got me, got me to the greatest teachers. Um, and now I look at my career over the last 10 years and it's like, yeah, I'm where I'm at. If for no other reason that I've been willing to spend 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week for 10 years trying to achieve this idea of optimal delivery of education and human movement science. That has been my grind. So whatever your grind is, man, you just gotta, you gotta get at it. You gotta be disciplined and you gotta do it every day. Well, then I'm curious, maybe what, what are some of your routines that you'll follow Brent? Like as far as, um, really being able to get your movement in, I mean, get your sleep, all of that, but then also, uh, blend that with your work, with, with your writing, with your videos, all of that too. Great question. So I will admit if I have one weakness, it's work-life balance. Um, my work-life balance is not great. I, I sleep enough. I sleep between seven and nine hours every day, but literally from the moment I get up to the moment 
till about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, like I'm working. So, uh, you know, I get up and, and the first part of my day is concerned with answering emails, support emails for the website, ensuring that my, the people who work for the Brooke Bush Institute all have what they need to get their job done, uh, following our statistics and all the finances involved in the business. Um, so that's how it starts. And then I get into the social media thing, making sure all social media is caught up. And then usually I have meetings or podcasts like this at about this time of the day. Um, and then hopefully I get time to write after that, although it doesn't always happen. Unfortunately, you know, you'd think that like writing would take up most of my time and it's actually 85% of my time is spent producing the infrastructure that is going to be the platform for my writing, right? So writing is almost the easy part. Uh, as far as working out, you know, I get, I get two kind of corrective and upper body workouts a week. And then I've been, I've been on a kick right now where I've been trying to get back in a pretty competitive basketball shape, trying to uh, push that all the way till I'm, I'm 40 and I'm coming up on 37 here. So it's not as easy as it used to be, but I do two really long workouts where I do my corrective exercise, which takes forever before I get on a basketball court, uh, my lower body work. And then, you know, I play pickup games usually Wednesdays and Saturday mornings. What does your corrective exercise look like right now? Like what are some of the things that you have to work on for yourself? So I, obviously I use the model that is all over the Brooke Bush Institute website, which is a continuation of Mike Clark's work with the National Academy of Sports Medicine's corrective exercise model. Um, the problems I've had include like I had right knee surgery. Um, I have some left ankle impingement that I'm working on. And I have a, a few herniations in my cervical spine. So I usually end up having to do a pretty big corrective exercise program because it's a mix between trying to fix my lower extremity dysfunction and my cervical dysfunction. So it takes a little while. Um, you know, I probably could cut it down if I needed to. But the truth of the matter is, is I really want to go out there and be competitive. Um, you know, I still... I still want to get a dunk in a game in my 30s. Um, it hasn't happened yet, but I haven't given up. I t well, I take that back. I had one dunk in a game when I was 31, but I feel like that barely counts because I just crossed <laughs> 30 threshold. Um, but I'm. Still you want to be able to do it when you're 39, right? Like on both yeah. ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, I want to do it in a full court game at 39 years old, dunk it. Uh, I feel like that's a good goal, but. You know, even more than that, the reason why I talk about staying out there until I'm 40 is my father passed away of diabetes at 56. That's really young. Um, you know, we all have to make this self-selection of exercise as we get older. And I know basketball isn't a forever sport, right? Everybody kind of – I'm one of the older guys on the court usually at 36. So I know it's not going to last forever, but the longer I can make it last – the longer I push off that slow backslide that happens as we age. And hopefully I don't go down the same path that my father did, because despite the fact that type 2 diabetes is obviously behavioral, um, obviously he did not take care of himself as well as he should have. You have to think for as young as he was, there may be some genetic component. It's not like he passed away at 65 or 70 of diabetes. He was 56. That's a little, it's a little frightening. So... Um, I definitely have that in the back of my head. It's not something I'm paranoid about, but I've set this goal of I'm going to stay on the basketball court, stay competitive, stay getting invited to leagues and invite-only runs until I'm in my 40s, and then maybe I'll switch over to golf or something. So outside of maybe the physical activities, uh, what else are you doing to uh, making sure you, you stay healthy and you can play uh, basketball and put off the golf game as long as you can? <laughs> I, I do have to back up a step. I didn't hit golf balls for the first time last year. That sport is really a lot harder than it looks. Um, <laughs> swinging that golf club is got to be the most wrenching thing on my core I've ever done. And I've played against some big boys on the basketball court. They still didn't do to me what that golf club did. So <laughs> I, I have utmost respect for golfers. Um, but with that being said, like, you know, I definitely watch my diet. 
I definitely try to rest. I think the corrective exercise and recovery work is the key. Um, I know there's like this whole group of individuals out there, usually individuals in their 20s, who have yet to experience orthopedic pain, who are like anti-corrective exercise and anti-postural dysfunction and anti-movement impairment. And you don't need this and all you need to do is lift heavy. Listen to me. If you, if you hear one thing I say, it's not just about not hurting now. It's about not hurting later. I'm the only guy I know from my group of friends that I grew up with playing ball once I came out to New York who's still playing. Right? They're all they've all kind of given up because they 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 get tired of their knees hurting, right? Like they played a game on Saturday, their knees hurt until Thursday. Right? I'm still out there playing and I don't have that type of orthopedic pain. Um, to keep on the court at a high level, like doing that corrective exercise is has been the key. I haven't had any major ligament injuries. No ACL, no MCL, no PCL. Right, I haven't had labral tears. I haven't had anything that's been so structurally significant that it would keep me off. But even my knee surgery was just cleaning up some some fraying and meniscus and some of the cartilage had delaminated strangely. Um, but that's more like arthritis stuff. Like it didn't take me that long to recover from that. Um, so I think the corrective exercise is a big key. You know, I, I, I made an Instagram post. I don't take rest days. There's work days and recovery days. Recovery days are just corrective exercise. Um, life will throw in plenty of rest days, right? Like yesterday I got slammed with meetings. I was planning on going in and working out and I didn't make it. So well today, yesterday ended up being a rest day. Otherwise, if, if I can get to the gym, even for 30 minutes, I'll do something. I'll, you know, I'll get some release techniques in for my neck, some deep cervical flexor activation stuff, um, maybe work on my ankles a little bit. If I have, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, I'll pick something to kind of keep the whole recovery thing going. No, and I'm glad you brought that up because, well, in part the, yeah, the 20 something person, they have to understand, like there still is balance. Like you're not going to just go and go crazy and work out two hours a day and heavy and not take rest days or whatever it may be, but you're going to have those days where it's all right. Sure. I'm not going and I'm not trying to squat 500 pounds and I'm not trying to do this and I'm not trying to play basketball for five hours a day. No, but you're going to go in, you're still going to move. You're still going to do what you need to do so that your body can go in the next day and return to some of that. Uh, looking back, like, were there any key moments, key points for you, uh, maybe outside of uh, the the um, uh, facial injury, where it was just like, wow, I need to start taking care of my joints, my 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 ligaments, my tendons. Uh, was there anything that really struck home for you? I started basketball pretty late. Um, I didn't take basketball seriously until after my lip injury. Uh, and when I say seriously, we're not talking about semi-pro or anything or organized ball. We're just, you know, I started playing basketball like a little bit more competitively. Um, but with that being said, I think as I started becoming more serious about basketball, I started experiencing knee pain, uh, which is obviously very common. And I'm a big guard, essentially. I'm six foot three, 220 pounds. Right. So although six foot three isn't very tall for a basketball player, 220 pounds, kind of a tank. Um, at my lightest, I'm 210. Right. Which I know is, we got bodybuilders and powerlifters out there who are bigger, but got to keep keep your sport. But in mind. for a guard, that's on the high end, 210 and six yes. three. That's on already the top end of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. Like you could think Dwayne Wade is six four, 220. Like, and you can think of how thick he looks compared to the other guards he comes up against. Um. So with that being said, I started having knee pain and then like, you know, I started falling at about this time. I'm starting to like teach for New York sports club, training their trainers. They used the NASM, um, texts as the, the focus for their education program at New York sports club at that time. And I just kind of started working through this corrective exercise model. And lo and behold, you know, you start working on your lower extremity dysfunction and work on dorsiflexion and inverter strengthening and, start doing a little glute meat activation and my knees don't hurt. 
Well, then you take that and you keep optimizing it and you add a periodized program on top of it. And all of a sudden they go from touching the rim to being able to dunk. And all of a sudden you go, oh, oh, it's not just about injury prevention. It's also about optimization of mechanics, right? It's about getting the most out of my form. So, you know, I think personally, that's where I started switching. And then I started bringing other guys with me. Like I definitely have some friends now who are, oh, yeah, we got to get to the gym an hour before we start playing because we got to do a corrective exercise. And, you know, that sounds crazy to some people, but it's like, yeah, these are guys who are playing, though, right? Like, they're they're still got great physicality, great first steps, great verticals. Like, they still can defend at a high level, even though they're pushing into their 30s, you know, and you got some little 23-year-old guard who just got out of college. They're still playing competitively, and it's all because they started with this corrective exercise and they kept going with it. But even talking about that 23-year-old uh, who just graduated – I remember, like, I played football, but I, I knew a lot of the basketball guys, too. But there were still tons of guys when we were seniors in college that were, oh, my God, my knees are killing me. My ankles are killing me. Like, And that was just a normal daily thing. Like, take that another 10 years. Take that another 50 years. And it's do the math. It doesn't add up well for you. No. No, and, I, you know, some of the guys know who I am at the gym. Um, most of them obviously don't. I mean, not like famous or anything, but you know, some of them have run into my YouTube videos and pulled me aside. It doesn't even have to be a pain thing. If we go back to optimizing performance, I've taken young guys, 20, 21 years old, and being like, hey, do you realize you got some ankle stiffness? I'm like, nah. I'm like, dude, give me five minutes. They give me five minutes, and sure enough, like get an extra two, three, four inches on their vertical. It's not that they it's not that I, I performed magic. It's just if you have a restriction, you're not optimizing your movement, you're essentially wasting energy somewhere. You have an energy leak you could think about it as. All of a sudden, they get them their dorsiflexion back and get them their inverter strength back. Now they can use their ankle complex more efficiently, and essentially their body will let them tap into the power that they already had. Right. So it's it, it is, of course the longevity thing, which is what I try to promote a lot. Um, I think that might be just a little egocentrism and being the age I am and, and realizing that, that I don't have that many years left of competitive play. But um, it's also like you got to think, if you can just get the most out of your system, you're going to perform better. You know, it's uh, too many people are walking around with their wheels out of alignment. It's basically the way to think about it. You put your wheels back in alignment, you're going to go faster. I'm curious on uh, some of your thoughts because uh, talking about like everybody's, I think, more in on the, the hip strengthening game, that type of thing. Uh, but talking about the inverters and can you share just why that's such a big deal? I don't think that's uh, touched on often enough or even just understood well enough. Yeah, good, great point. So the research is definitely leaned towards this idea that a functional valgus, which is knees bow in, is very correlated with femoral internal rotation and underactivity or weakness of the glute complex. But there's only been a couple of studies that have shown that a decrease in ankle dorsiflexion will have an effect on increasing functional knee valgus as well. And there's even less research to kind of indicate that the tibialis anterior and tibialis posterior, if their activation is increased, will help create a more stable base. So the inferences are there. There's a few studies. Brent, can you still hear me? Where we uh, left off. Yeah, sorry guys, we uh, lost over there for a second. Um, Brent, last that I heard you talking about. Okay, you were talking about some of the uh, increase in the dorsiflexion, but then the inverters versus the everters. Some research, but not a whole lot on. Uh, not that everybody's uh, out there diving into that. I'm sure though either. Yeah. So, well, you got a couple guys who are diving into the hip thing, right? Like you guys, you got Powers out in California, and you got uh, Padua. 
out of Chapel Hill, uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And they're really, they've done a great job of like getting us away from knee dysfunction comes from the knee, right? They started bringing us to think the knee dysfunction might be coming from the hip and weakness in the glutes and this femoral internal rotation. Now, I know Padua and his team have a couple of research studies that are showing a correlation between a lack of dorsiflexion and increase in knee valgus. Um, however, there hasn't been the next step taken, which is if we increase inverter strength, we'll reduce knee valgus. So we have, a, we have another step to go in the research. Now, clinically, right, so my experience has shown me that if you can not only increase somebody's dorsiflexion, but then increase inverter strength so that you return the medial longitudinal arch to optimal position, you're much less likely to have knee valgus. Um, essentially, if you run out of dorsiflexion in order to compensate, this is generally speaking again, uh, in order to compensate, you're going to go into excessive eversion and tibial external rotation, so your feet are going to flatten and turn out, right? So that's going to – the tibial external rotation is essentially the same thing as femoral internal rotation, which dives your knees inward. Now consider if you had enough dorsiflexion and increased inverter strength, that's essentially opposing that feet flattening. Inverter strength is anti-feet flattening is maybe what I'm trying to drive home. Um, it'll be interesting to see when that, that research comes out. I, you know, I, I know we're very successful with it uh, in my office. Every time we go after somebody's ankles, we improve ankle dysfunction, they feel better. Um, it's, it's almost a little crazy what a magic fix it is because we'll have somebody come in with like low back pain chronic low back pain who's been suffering for 18 months seen. Unfortunately, I get these individuals who see me online and they've seen three physical therapists, two chiropractors, an athletic trainer, two physicians. And they're like, now can you fix me? And I'm like, uh, maybe. <laughs> um, but it's amazing that usually with those individuals, we start looking at some more distal segments for like low back pain. We were just talking about, you have somebody do their overhead squat assessment and then you have them do an overhead squat assessment on a heel rise, right? So essentially you're giving them their dorsiflexion back by starting them with a lot of plantar flexion. They have a little bit of range through dorsiflexion, so to speak. Um, and they'll do their squat and their back will feel better. And you're like, okay. And of course there is a mechanical reason for that. If you don't have enough dorsiflexion, you also end up with an excessive forward lean, which is going to put more, a larger moment arm on your lumbar spine, that increase in force is going to increase in muscle activity and affermentation and, of course, increase pain. But the idea being, as I kind of lead us in a big circle here, if you go back and, and, and do your assessment and the ankle is showing dysfunction, like, fix it. You know, don't worry so much. The research will get there. Um, I have no doubt that eventually we're going to see much more research come in on how important the foot and ankle is to optimal function of the knee, hip, and lumbar spine, and sacroiliac joint, respectively. Yeah, just you're already going to be five to ten years ahead of the research curve right now. Uh, if you just hey, if you're not even sure on it, play with it a little bit. Like watch some of your right. videos. I mean, you're going to see some of this. Uh, Hey, is it necessarily the exact thing that's causing your knee, hip, back, SI joint, whatever? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but if you look down and you see those Mississippi mud suckers down there, the feet are just flat as a board. Uh, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed either way. It, 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 yeah, for sure. Chances are, if you're doing self-administered corrective exercise, you know, you're not ramming things into yourself. You know, somebody else isn't manipulating you. Like, you're just doing some, like, good therapeutic corrective exercise. You're probably not going to hurt yourself. It may not change anything, but, you know, it's worth a try. You, your your risk-to-reward ratio is pretty good. Risk is very low. Reward has the potential to be high. So, Brent, I'm curious then, going into uh, some of your writings, like, well, 
are you working on anything big right now? Like anything that you're really working on just uh, getting out there, uh, any big, uh, any new books coming your way or uh, just any articles that you're really excited about? So what's big? Uh, um, generally we're always trying to go bigger, right? Like that's, that's what you have to, to consider right now. I'm really excited about the fact that I am putting together what I hope um, will be the best writing team in human movement science, hands down. Um, we just hired three new writers. That brings our staff up to like seven to eight writers. we got some really cool stuff planned on getting them to work as a group so that we can start taking on some really large projects. Um, if you've seen our joint articles, so we started to do the integration of functional anatomy of joints. Those articles are between eight and 12,000 words long. It's a pretty big article. That ends up being somewhere between 16 and 30 book pages, essentially. Um, and all of our stuff is cited, of course, research-based. Uh, and then, of course, integrating all the stuff we integrate with our videos and hyperlinks and pop-up glossary and, and all the stuff we do to make learning just that much more attainable. We hope to be able to produce that size of article just on a much faster pace than we've been doing. So as far as what am I excited about, I'm excited about the fact that in 2017, we're going to be producing the highest quality content in the industry, I hope, at a pace that keeps up with the most popular blogs in the industry. Which obviously, the, those, are, those two things don't usually match in our industry, right? The most popular blogs are usually not evidence-based. 500 um, words. Yeah, 500 words. They're pumping out stuff. It's a lot of garbage, um, a lot of controversial speak just for the sake of being controversial. We're going to be pumping out stuff that people, I hope, enjoy reading because it's written in a way that people enjoy reading. It's going to be evidence-based. The citations are going to be there. You're going to be able to trust it. You know, this isn't Brent's ideas about human movement science. That was never what this was intended to be. Uh, my idea was to optimize education, not to get my personal philosophy out there. I'm not trying to run a cult. Um, the evidence is going to be there, and then hopefully we can do it at a clip that keeps people engaged that way too. So, like, if we were producing one of those joint articles a month, I mean, how awesome would that be that, like, you know, this month you're going to pull apart the ankle and you're going to do a little study in there. And then we're even going to get that accredited so that you can get CECs for your certification, right? And we've already done that with the joint articles. So, and then next month we're going to do the knee. And so you read the knee, you study, you take your test. And then the next month you do your hip. And then the next month you do your sacroiliac joint. The next month the shoulder, shoulder girdle, lumbar spine, thoracic spine, cervical spine. How badass would you be at your joint and skeletal anatomy by the end of a year. Like this is where we're headed. We're going to get people so that all of our stuff is mobile friendly, can be read on their phone, read on their tablet. We'll have an app next year that makes that even easier than it is now. We're already really mobile friendly, but we're going to make it even easier. And the idea is just if we keep producing this high level content, keep putting it out there that you guys will keep taking it in little by little keep taking your tests so that we get you recertified because we know that's important and sure enough just spoon feeding yourself this information at the end of a year two years five years you're going to be killing there's the, there's going to be no way for you not to be killing it one test a week and you know imagine where you would be we already have 62 online courses Imagine how good you would be at human movement science if you just did one test a week. Like that's what we're that's that's what I get excited about is how we're going to affect education. What do you see are maybe some of the biggest uh, holdups with the education model today, and where do people really struggle with that? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. So, first off, is access. There is not enough thought, there's not enough empathy from education 
organizations, from teachers, from schools, to consider the fact that the idea of stopping work for any period of time to go back to school is almost unrealistic. It is a crying shame that talented individuals do not get a shot at doing something they would be talented at and contributing to our field because they can't afford to stop doing what they're doing right now. You know, I guess we could make an argument for work harder or put in more hours. And, you know, obviously I went the hard route and had a full-time job and did full-time school for like 11 years. But (laughs) that's what motivates me. I don't think anybody should have had it as hard as I did. I mean, I remember just like head in hands, walking around like a zombie, so tired I could barely think straight for months in it. That's not fair, man. That's not That wasn't fair to me. It's not fair to anybody who's doing it now. It's not fair to the next generation, right? So let's start with the access point. And that's where I think online is really exciting. Not that everything can be taught online. Obviously, we're going to have to put in some sort of manual therapy workshop for our PTs, ATCs, and DCs in the future. But... You know, a lot of stuff can be taught online. We used to have a functional anatomy workshop. Our functional anatomy workshop, we did two research studies on to show that we were more effective at teaching functional anatomy than a traditional college course. Um, we that Our lesson plan fared very well compared to traditional teaching. But even I had to take a step back and go, as much as I love to teach this, let's tape it, let's put it online, because there's no reason for somebody to be in a classroom. And if there's no reason for somebody to be in a classroom, then they don't have to give up a weekend. They don't have to spend as much money, because obviously it's very expensive to set up a workshop. You have to have rent for the facility and possibly liability insurance, and you have to pay an instructor and all that fun stuff, right? No, we're going to put this online. Because the truth is we could tape my lecture. Well, what, what about if students have questions? So we put a comments box at the bottom of every lecture. And we answer that, right? So we've taken care of that access point, I think, with online. And and you will continue to see us be as mobile-friendly as, as we possibly can, continue to optimize that, because we know that more and more now, people aren't even sitting at their PCs. They're on their iPads. They're on their Android phones. They're on their their Surface Pros or whatever else is out there, right? Like these little these little tablets and stuff, and they're watching lectures. They're going through their education that way. We're even working right now to put closed captioning on every video. Why? Because we found out that most people aren't even listening to videos because they're not in a place where they can turn the sound on. Right? They're at work. They're at Starbucks. They're at on a subway train. Um, so I think that access point is really, really important. Um, I'm sorry, let's go. What was the the main question here? The main question was... Oh, uh, just how to really... uh, I think some of the the setbacks, like really just what's lacking in the uh, education. Right. So I think the second point we would make other than this access point is the understanding that adults learn different. Adults learn through association. Adults want to have some control over how and what they're educated in and we can do that. So one of the big reasons why you see so much integration of technology in every article we have, you know, like I said, with the hyperlinks and the pop-up glossary and the illustrations and the videos and the all of the other stuff that we're doing, right? Like these scannable templates that make it really easy is adults get in there and they're trying to associate what they're reading with stuff they already know. And if they don't know it, they want to be able to associate it with something else. The biggest compliment we get on our website is, yeah, man, I went on your website, Brett, and uh, I went to read an article, and then I looked up and three hours had gone by. Perfect. That's a comparison to Wikipedia right there, which is a big compliment. Yes, right. The Wikipedia of human movement science, we've been called, and I love it. Like, Wikipedia, you know, obviously we're not going to be crowdsourced. There's a problem with crowdsourcing (laughs) and teaching quality high, but 
Um, I just love that ability that and that motivation and the intent to get people to get in there and they're learning something and then they get excited about something else and then they get excited about something else. And since it's all connected, this goes to the second point, they have the choice to flow through that however they want. Now, at some point, if they want to get CECs, they're going to have to take a test and they're going to have to study one thing, right? But even that, we've made so much simpler because we only produce one to four-hour courses. So you won't have to like sit there and be stuck on one thing for two days. You can be almost as ADD as you want to be. You can take a test on gluteus maximus today. Um, tomorrow you can go ahead and take a test on scapular muscle release and lengthening. The next day you could take something on the ankle joint and coming up this year, we're going to have exams on, on various components of strength and performance training. So you might be able to take a test on, uh, chest slash pushing exercises and progressions, right? And that'll be a test. So, and you can take those four tests that I just mentioned, which have very little to do with one another, the glutes, the ankle, scapular muscle flexibility, and chest and pushing. And I don't care, just learn, right? The idea is, is if you keep down this path for long enough, you're going to aggregate all the information you need anyway. Right, so we got the access problem, we have the association problem, we have the choice problem, um, and then I think the other thing that we're doing well is, you know, you got to make it cheap, right? You can't, you can't be punishing people to be educated and hopefully we can keep cheap. Our rates do go up at the beginning of the year, but we're, we're going from $12.99 a month to $19 a month. I'm hoping that doesn't kill anybody. Um, we're still pretty dirt cheap for what we offer. Um, and along the lines of cheap, if you're really going to be cheap, that means it has to include everything. All right, so notice what I was talking about. Like, you can watch, you can do articles, videos, you can get your CECs fulfilled. We have plans for a credential, but I'm going to hold off on saying anything about that. That's super hush hush secret. But. With all that being said, we don't upsell. Nobody wants to see that anymore. People are getting really tired. The most common question we get asked, and, and part of me almost gets offended, is, well, once I become a member, how much are the online courses? No, 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 no. Once you are a member, you've, you're done. You that get is it your all. Channel. You get it all. And I think that's where we need to be. If you're going to be cheap, you can't. You can't say you have cheap access to education and then start putting in all these upsell tactics inside of your, your thing. Now, it's one thing. Don't get me wrong. There are costs associated with stuff. The accreditation process isn't cheap, right, to get us approved for CECs. I understand that certain organizations have to place costs on certain additional services. But there's got to be some transparency there, there. You know, so that that whatever your your audience is, they understand. Um, I think it's a little. I think where I get frustrated is you you buy a membership to something, and then you get in and it's like, well, but if you want to get a gold membership, it's double. And if you want to get a platinum membership, and I'm like, I thought I got access to this when I signed up as a member. Like this is weird, right? I, we're we're not going to do that. We're going to be easy access. We're going to have this associative learning path dialed in. We're going to give adults their choice on how they want to be educated. And we're going to try to keep this thing as affordable as possible with one monthly cost. Um, I think when you look at what's going on with universities asking you to take three years of your life off, they still use some horrific old school didactic lesson plans that, I mean, no, no high school teacher would use anymore at this point. But because most university professors aren't actually teachers, um, that's, that's how that ends up going down. And then you look at the inflation 
of college tuitions over the last 10 years, 20 years, um, we're, we're, we're going against all of it. And, and I hope, I hope we can just do our little part at making education more accessible. You know, I know we got on this podcast and wanted to talk about human movement science and fitness and, and look, man, I, I hope at this point I'm an expert in human movement science. Obviously that's my geek out, but, uh, the thing that drives my motivation, the thing that drives my grind is all the stuff we just talked about. It's what impact can I have on education, which is going to increase the standard, increase the quality, increase the level of service from professionals in our industry. That's the stuff that gets me all geeked out, um, gets me driven to get up in the morning because I can do my geek out on my own, man. Like, I love these predictive models of postural dysfunction. Um, I can tell you all about lower extremity dysfunction. I can tell you all about sacroiliac joint dysfunction and how it should be called lumbosacral dysfunction. I can tell you where Yonda's one of the most brilliant individuals in our industry for creating the upper cross and lower cross syndrome. But I can also tell you where he was wrong based on new research. Like, I'm that guy. I read research at a at a pretty ridiculous rate. I read books at a pretty ridiculous rate. You know, I posted on Instagram that I'm reading the fossil stuff right now from Schleep and, you know, I was reading Butler's book and I'll pick up uh, Gray Cook's book and then I'll pick up, you know, it doesn't matter. Like I'll pick up Perry Nicholson's new book and, and I'm always reading stuff, but that's me, man. That's, that's me trying to be a better professional. That's me trying to, I guess at least be a little forward thinking on, on the content we're going to create in the future, what areas we're going to need to cover. But none of that matters. None of that matters if I can't figure out how to put a platform together that is accessible and delivers content the way the student wants it. It's all for naught. It would be like having a great movie and throwing it up on a screen that's two inches by two inches. Does it really matter? Right? I want to say that's something that I do really appreciate because uh, for, for PT right now, like I use MedBridge a lot for some of the online classes and I just feel absolutely bored out of my mind because as you talked about before, like, okay, these are a lot of times like the college professors or whatever, they're just going up there and they're talking and they're like staring off into space and like, here's their slide on the screen and it's, they're pretty much reading verbatim what it says on the slide right next to the video that you're watching. And it's like, what the hell? Like, I don't want to have to even watch these videos for just like, if this is what it's going to be for me to get some of my credits, just give me the PDFs. Let me read through it and just answer the questions at the end. If it's, 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 it's that boring. It's almost like, okay, you just have to look back. Okay, this answer was on this slide. This answer was on this slide rather than actually learning what they're talking about and having that good video quality, having all of those other links to see, hey, this is here, this is here, and integrating that all together. So like MedBridge is interesting, right? So I, I look up to MedBridge. Yeah, just let's, let's just totally clear the air before we, we throw criticisms. Um, I look up to MedBridge. Of the four problems that we talked about, they solved a lot of them, right? Oh, they definitely did. It's online access for everybody to courses they probably never would have had access to before. Um, MedBridge does have the problem of they're after the physical therapy market mostly. And physical therapy, as you well know, is one of the most broad-based professions on the planet, right? So you know that we're sports orthopedic uh, – we're, we're orthopedic sports medicine at the Brookbush Institute, essentially, right. right? We're outpatient orthopedic sports medicine. So we're a very, if we're going to talk in physical therapy talk, right? We're human movement science, but that's out the, outpatient orthopedic sports medicine to physical therapists, which means that's the only physical therapist that I actually care about. You don't have to worry about me going in and creating a module on vestibular care. Like, it might be interesting, but at this point, it doesn't fit into our thing. So... MedBridge's problem, if they have a problem, if I was gonna, th if I, if somehow I was gonna throw criticisms, 
um, at a, a very successful company who's doing a great job is that associative thing they can't do with their current model. If they're going to go after such a big market that they're going to cover everything from wound care to acute care to sports medicine to vestibular care, it would be very hard to bring all that stuff together in a way um, that would feed the adult learner's need to be able to break out and associate with other things. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they tackle that problem. I'm assuming they'll have to eventually, because um, otherwise they're just going to end up with a really splintered product. But let's give them a ton of credit for creating a cheap, easy access education program. You know, I would love nothing more than to see some sort of combination of MedBridge and the Brookbush Institute. Obviously, I have to throw in my bias. Um, but some sort of weird combination of the two of us to cover the majority of physical therapy education so that all of the talented individuals out there who can't take three years out of their life and pay anywhere from thirty to $130,000 in tuition right actually had a chance to become physical therapists you know like why could why can't you do 60 70 even maybe 80 percent of physical therapy education online the only thing you need to be in a classroom for is practical hands-on stuff so and maybe yeah, even with virtual reality that could be uh something to get into there too who knows maybe once we get like maybe oculus rift can create like some sort of touch touch interface that allows me to, to palpate stuff. I don't know. That sounds like it's getting a little creepy actually. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you get what I'm saying. Like I think, you know, Medbridge is definitely somebody who we look up to, you know, and then you look at the other end of the spectrum and look at what mobility wads doing. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, they're, they're totally student centered. Um, and I don't agree with everything that Kelly Starrett says. Not everything he does is evidence-based. I think some of his techniques are a little aggressive, but man, he's brilliant. He's smart, and he's got he's got the idea down of I'm going to produce what the students want in a format that they'll accept it. Um, you know, and then I think we're somewhere in between doing our own thing. You know, we're not MedBridge because we're not trying to cover everything. Um, we're not Kelly Starrett because we have uh, some quality standards involving evidence-based and the fact that we have academic partnerships and offer academics to support to schools. So we have to be a little bit more um, judicious in the type of techniques we teach. But then it, it, it's all really exciting, right? Like you just look at what what we're becoming a part of and what I hope I'm a part of with this democratization of education um, the idea that education can truly be student-centered, um, get away from this academic ivory tower, thou shall bow down to thy professor um, model of teaching that's just a little too common. And I'm not saying every professor's like that, man. I had some great professors coming up, but like we, we need to, to keep going in the direction we're going. Like, it's got to be student-centered. I think the millennials are pulling us in that direction, whether we want it to be or not. And I, I, I agree with that, though, because if the student isn't the primary focus point, what's the point? They're, they're right. the ones that are going to be going out and being the practitioners, being uh, in the field that they need that most. Like, yes, do you need uh, whoever the educators are? Do they need to be at the top of their game? Well, of course, but... That's, I think, a given because now it has to all be poured into that student so that everybody is getting the most out of it because now it's trickling down. Whether you're a, a PT, uh, an athletic trainer, a personal trainer, like um, chiropractor, whatever, it's all is trickling down into the patient and they're still getting the most out of it uh, because of that student-centered model, really. Right. It's not about you, man. I mean, that's... That's one of our big things is like, it's not about you. It's not about, you know, anybody who comes on the Brookbush Institute, I don't care how smart you are. I care how smart you can make other people. 
So it's great that you know all these big words, but if your student doesn't understand them, I don't care. Everybody knows you're smart, otherwise you wouldn't be working for us, right? Otherwise you wouldn't have the doctor in front of your name. Otherwise you wouldn't have the 18 other credentials that you have after your name. Everybody knows you're smart. Now just teach to them where they're at. And I, we all got to get there. You know, I think, what is it, a life that's not in service to others is a waste. I think that's Zig Ziglar, right, the sales guru, um, which is kind of odd to think that this guy is is a salesman, but he's talking about, like, we should all be trying to help each other, not trying to to lift ourselves up, you know. It's a... Uh, I was gonna say, kind of, kind of coming to a close here. I want to be respectful of your time. I know we've been geeking out on this for a while here and loving it. Uh, one of the last questions I ask everybody who comes on the show is, who would you want to hear on this podcast, and what would you either want to ask them, or what would you just want to hear them talk about? Wow. Um, man, I'd love. So we we mentioned a bunch of people already that I think would be really interesting. I'd love to hear the CEO of MedBridge, like what, what was their goal? Um, and obviously this is a bit of an education geek out. I love to know what Kelly Starrett thinks his place in education in the physical, physical therapy community is. Um, I always love to hear, you know, one of my biggest influences, obviously Mike Clark, right. Creator of the OTT model over at the national Academy of sports medicine. I always love to hear from him and listening to that guy talk about, organizational change is mind-numbing. Um, you know, who else did we talk about? Like, you, you can throw up just anybody who's doing it big, anybody who's really trying to move forward and change education in a big way. I'd love to hear from them. And then ask your same questions, like, what inspires them? What motivates them to get on their grind? What do they think their grind is, right? Like those are the type of questions that like I always, I always love to hear. I will have to do uh, some reaching out here. Uh, so Brent, in closing, where can everybody find out more about you, what you're working on right now, what the Brent Bush, Brooke Bush Institute is coming out with? Uh, just, hey, how they can sign up, all of the above, please. So we're pretty, we're pretty good about getting everything on brentbrookbush.com, right? So that's the site, or you can put in brookbushinstitute.com. Both are going to lead you to the same place. Um, we've definitely become an online education company with live education support rather than the other way around. There's a newsletter up there. Um, it's on the top left corner of our home screen. You can sign up with that. I personally write those newsletters. They, to me, are a letter to the members. I try to keep people up on, like, you know, hey, we're working on redoing the online course page, or hey, we just made this more user-friendly over here, you should check it out, or hey, we're really excited about this upcoming project. I try to stay transparent and as down-to-earth with our members as I possibly can be. Um, the site is, is definitely the place to be at this point. You can, of course, follow me on social media. We're huge on Facebook. I just started an Instagram account. A little late to that party, but I started an Instagram account. <laughs> um, we're, of course, on YouTube. You can see a sampling of about a quarter of the videos we offer uh, on YouTube, and that was that's always been one of our big platforms. I'm on Twitter, guys, but the only thing we do on Twitter is repost what we do on Facebook. It just hasn't been a very big uh, platform for us, but if that's where you get your information, you can follow us. We will put it up there for you. Obviously, once again, being student-centered, we will put information wherever you want it. So. There you go, everybody. Make sure to uh, check it out. Uh, if you're not sure, if you're ready to dive in, hey, at least check out the YouTube. There's going to be already plenty of stuff there. And then I'm sure much, much more uh, on uh, the website there. So, hey, go check it out. Get your education on for really uh, what works for everybody currently. And that's, that's that student-centered model. So, Brent, again, thank you so much for the talk today. Yeah, man. Glad just talk went in a really great direction. I'm looking forward to hearing feedback, man. Thanks for uh, asking some really good questions. I like the questions. Thanks again for listening. 
And don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you. Mm-hmm.